BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Bowery Boys episode 120, New York and the birth of the movies. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We're tackling a fan-requested topic. This has been one that has been on the minds of a lot of our listeners. We are looking at New York and the movies. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, they're going to talk about Annie Hall and, and great movies that have been shot in New York or feature New York. This is actually not today's subject. Instead, what we're going to do is... Rewind the reel all the way to the very beginning of movie making because it was at this time more than any other time in the history of film that New York is truly the capital of movie making. So we're really going back to, say, 1885 until about World War One. In fact, we're going back to a time which is sort of early even in the history of silent film. A lot of silent film classics won't even come into play in this story. Right, because movies won't talk until the late 20s. This is sort of a different kind of show for us. It's a cultural history of something that is very American, but with deep roots in the New York area. Of course, we're not just going to talk about the whole history of movie making because we want to keep this centered on how it pertains to New York City. Many of the first studios were based here in New York and in the surrounding areas. This is truly going to be a five-borough podcast because there are studios all over the New York metropolitan area. With bonus feature, um, lots of action taking place in New Jersey. And not only are we going to be talking about the movie making, but we're going to be talking a lot about the very first places that movies were shown and exhibited. So hand over your nickels, please. Take a seat and join us for a short history of New York City movie making. Tom, why don't you get us started? We don't mm. have a, a part of our show where we situate the listener because we don't. We're right. This is not that kind of a show. I think that lengthy intro situated us <laughs> into today's subject. In fact, the show is going to be so unusual that I believe that the start of our story isn't even going to be in New York, but rather across the water at our neighboring state, New Jersey. That's right. However, Greg, dare I start us out even back in Renaissance time? <laughs> Oh my, yes. I didn't realize that they uh, they had movies back then, but you're, these are the precursor, I'm sure. Yes, and I'll make this brief. Let's just say that there is a long history of trying to make images move, entertaining people with with images that were painted onto moving discs or printed on strips of paper or that involved projected slides way back from Renaissance times up through the 19th century. The most famous of these were the magic lanterns that became very popular during the 19th century where slides would be projected onto a screen in a viewing parlor by a skilled projectionist. The projectionist would sometimes handle multiple slides at the same time, you know, fading in and out images sort of to create very dramatic effects using gels and colors and sort of bringing these images to life. This was something that was even popular in New York back in the day, for instance. Uh, You would frequently see these in the 1870s and the 1880s. For instance, one might walk by Madison Square Park and see a sheet that would be hanging up, and Mm. there would be projections upon that sheet of 
attractive models and famous landmarks of the city. And then, of course, interspersed within that, advertisements of of local businesses around Madison Square Park. Absolutely. And people had experimented even 100 years before that in Paris with something called the Phantasmagora. Oh. Where Mm -hmm. images were being even projected onto big sort of like clouds of smoke in the room to give sort of demonic and eerie effects. Well, sounds very haunting. Absolutely. And entertaining. However, by the end of the 19th century, the world was changing and people's expectations were changing. Notably, electricity had come into the picture, phonographs, and of course, photography was changing how people saw the world and saw themselves. Speaking of photography, of course, a a person who used photographs for a very noble and social purpose was Jacob Rees, who wrote How the Other Half Lives. He was a social activist of the time. Who we discuss in the Five Points podcast. In fact, he was responsible, in a sense, for getting rid of the Five Points neighborhood and improving the living conditions of New Yorkers. On top of his famous photographs, he would also use the Magic Lantern or Stereopticon, and he would have lectures uh, for upper-class folk who, I guess, had never experienced or seen a poor person before or seen living conditions, and so he would project his photographs using this Magic Lantern system. Well, in the 1870s, there were experiments being done to try to bring those still images to life. But there were all kinds of obstacles. You know, how do you take photos with the with the same camera and on these hard negatives, the plates? How do you take sequential photographs fast enough? Do you use lots of different cameras? And then how do you project them fast enough? And by the 1880s, there were new cameras that were coming out that could take sequence shots, and there was new flexible film that was being produced by a company called the Eastman Company mm-hmm. uh, up in Rochester. Ten years later... Engineers were starting to put these pieces together, but they still weren't all the way there. And then along came Edison. Now, of course, one of the great innovators of American history and has given us tons of things. And we're going to focus on, I guess, his work in the movie cameras, the movie business. Now he was working on basically doing for images what he had done for sound with the phonograph. We say, of course, that it was Edison who who made these innovations He was very much involved in these discoveries, but he had a giant lab off in Orange, New Jersey, and lots of talented people working on this. His assistant, who really worked on most of his motion picture inventions, was a man named William Dixon. Now, Dixon was born in France of Scottish and English parents, and as a young man after his father's passing, he wrote to Edison at his lab in Orange uh, asking for a job, which Edison refused. Uh, But then Dixon just showed up and he managed to get in there, managed to get a job and started working as Edison's assistant. Edison started the patent process in 1888 on this new device, which he called the kinetoscope. But as you mentioned, he had all of these hurdles involving film stock, taking the photos and how to reproduce the image effectively. What I think is really interesting, Greg, about the kinetoscope is that it did not involve any kind of projection. So the first motion picture device Mm -hmm. that was presented in New York City that would open up in these kinetoscope parlors was actually a cabinet that one person, one viewer would step up to, look through a sort of peephole through a magnifying glass and see an image moving. This is how Edison debuted his phonographs. There would be phonograph parlors where people would would go in, there would be a line of their phonograph machines right. standing around, and you would just sit there and listen to it in that sort of same style, where it's right. like it's an individual experience. It's not something where you all sit in a room and you all enjoy it together. And he didn't want it to be projected, because he was in the business of selling these machines. He thought that the, the future for his company was in selling as many of these kinetoscope devices as possible. And by projecting the image on a screen, he'd be you know, killing the goose that laid the golden egg. He wanted a one-to-one ratio, as they say. Right. <laughs> he, didn't, he wanted one kinetoscope machine for each paying customer. But before he could show any films, he had to make some films. So in the winter of 1892-1893, Dixon built the first studio behind the Edison Labs in Orange, New Jersey, which was a big, ugly tar building that they called the Black Mariah. It had panels that could be removed so that the sun could get in, and it was even built on top of a giant revolving platform like a Lazy Susan that could turn so that... Uh, they could take advantage of the sun. The Edison Laboratories, uh, you can still visit them, and they have a replica of the Black Mariah, and it looks like a horrible place to work. (laughs) 
frankly. I mean, it's clearly made for this very, very primitive sort of filmmaking. Right. It is not made for comfort for its employees. Right. Well, you know, when you read that the roof and the walls are lined with black tar paper, you know, it, it really doesn't sound terribly enchanting. It makes your office environment seem a lot more homey in comparison. Just think about that next time that you're, like, lonely and tired at work. And what's funny is that in this structure, the first films were shot and and they convinced people you know because who was going to act in these they they were convincing people from the new york theater scene to come out to orange new jersey and step into this strange homely black building and perform or be quote recorded because the kinetograph which was the name of the camera that edison mm-hmm. developed to shoot these films was thought of as a, quote, recording device. They, they Again, they were making these parallels with the phonograph records. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just Broadway and vaudeville actors they were bringing over. It was also sports figures. Like, oh, they were absolutely. filming all sorts of different things. Eugene Sandow, who was the world's strongest man, and a star of Florence Ziegfeld's vaudeville theater. In fact, this was his very first major star. If you if, remember from our Ziegfeld podcast, he was a, a short, little, like, strong man. He would, also, he would often perform in the you know, semi-nude with his right. uh, bulging muscles. His films were very popular with the ladies. Oh, I'm sure. And the dandies, I'm sure. (laughs) Very scandalous. Other stars included Carmen Cita, a Spanish dancer, Annabelle Moore and her famous butterfly dance, Madame Bertoldi, the contortionist, and of course, Ruth Dennis, high kicker. Do you know, by the way, that butterfly dance? What was her name again? Annabelle Moore. Annabelle Moore's butterfly dance, they actually would hand color the actual slides. So in a way, it's the the very first color film, even though, of course, it's cheating. They literally colored the film. Right. Well, I think... With paints. (laughs) And we're also getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because the... The first movie that Edison actually copyrighted was called Blacksmith Scene, which was a bunch of guys banging around with anvils in the Black Mariah. And this was premiered on May 9th, 1893 at the Brooklyn Institute of Arts and Sciences in a lecture given by George Hopkins. To make a real impression and to draw a real contrast, Hopkins first showed magic lantern slides. Then he projected images that were stills from Blacksmith scene. And then he had one of these kinetoscopes that the audience could step up to, look down into, and actually see these images come to life and see these blacksmiths doing their thing. He was sort of building up expectation. Now, are you telling me that this, so then the very first demonstration of this Public demonstration happened in Brooklyn. It was in Brooklyn. Yes, on May 9th, 1893. So then, of course, they had to make some more films, and that's when they rushed out all of these great performers. Though The second film copyrighted was, quote, Record of a Sneeze, January 7th, 1894. (laughs) They they didn't have sophisticated narrative concepts back then. (laughs) Well, these were proof of concepts, and the Sneeze film actually showed Fred Ott, who was an Edison employee, letting out a whopper of a sneeze. You can actually look it up on YouTube, Greg. Oh, yeah. these Some of these films do still exist. Some of these very, very, very early films. They're not, you know, they're not compelling, but they're fascinating <laughs> from a historical context. So the next year, in April of 1894, the very first kinetoscope parlor opened up at 1155 Broadway. So that would be at 27th Street. And there, they converted a storefront into the first parlor. They put in 10 of these machines in two rows, five each, and put a big plaster bust of Edison in the middle of the whole thing, watching over the whole festivity. No ego at all. He actually didn't like that and made them take it down. He thought it was a little bit too much. Oh, it is too much. (laughs) Speaking of too much, each of these machines cost a nickel. You put in the nickel to start the film that was on a loop, and then you would move to the next one. So you could drop, and many people did drop, 50 cents in here. So it was an expensive entertainment, but it was the novelty of it, I'm sure, drew a lot of crowds. Oh, it was a huge hit. And one thing to remember, you mentioned it was on Broadway and 27th Street. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about a lot of places that are around this neighborhood. This is, of course, the sort of entertainment district around this right. period of time. Later that year in August, actually, another parlor called Latham's opened actually, though, downtown at at 83 Nassau Street. And that was constructed to show a boxing match. Each machine in the parlor showed a different round of the boxing match, and each one cost 10 cents to watch. Many people, many customers would actually 
skip to the last one just so they could watch the knockout and, you know, save some money. And these prize fighting films were actually extremely popular and somewhat scandalous because prize fighting was not legal in some places. By the end of that year, we're still in 1894. This is happening very quickly, Greg. Mm-hmm. Edison was starting to export his films and, and, of course, his kinetoscope machines to Europe. So, yes, audiences in Paris, London, and Berlin were able to see Ruth Dennis high kick back in Orange, <laughs> New Jersey. But as you reinforce, it's they're mostly coming from New Jersey. There's Most of these are still being made by Edison. Right who had the patent for these machines, right. But he had a problem on his hand. By the end of 1894, still that same year, you know, these things had been a big hit when they debuted, but audiences were starting to trail off. And by the end of 1894, the fall-off had been dramatic. So people were wondering, had these moving pictures just been a fad? Now, Edison is a little bit, I guess, like Oprah, in a sense, where, you know, he is sort of a brand name in himself, in right. himself. But in fact, the, the truth is he had many dozens of other people working for him and other innovators. And a lot of times they would just use that as a brand name uh, right. to release these. And I'll mention even a couple in a few minutes. But a lot of people would get disgruntled with this because they would want, you know, to have their own successes and their own name out there. So they would leave Edison and they would go off and they would do their own thing. Of course, they were had been working on these innovations, so they soon became competitors. As you mentioned, the late with the Lathams, right. uh, they would become prime competitors for Ed, uh, for Edison. They would in fact be the brothers Gray and Otway. Their father Woodville Lathan mm-hmm. um, would be uh, a great influence in their life. And in fact, the three of them would open their very first film production company and would open it at 35 Frankfurt Street, which is right off of the Brooklyn Bridge. So that every, every morning they went to work, they would see the Brooklyn Bridge, they would go into the little laboratories and work on these new film processes. Now, what they were working on was were not these little boxes that an individual person could view into, but something more along the lines of a movie that could be projected upon a surface. Mm-hmm. They actually had a lot of help with Mr. Dixon, who you mentioned, one of the prime forces in Edison's original inventions. And in fact, it had invented the kinetoscope. Because at some point, Dixon had had enough and he left Edison as well. Edison really has such a mark on the film industry, not because of what he did, but of all the people he annoyed who left and then developed other things. (laughs) It's really incredible. So Latham and his crew and uh, all these other creative types created a magic lantern of moving images of sort. It employed a new technique which would actually take on their name called the Latham Loop. It would create a, a slack in the film stock so they could essentially show a longer film. I suppose we should note that in the old Edison machines and the kinetoscopes, they were on a loop. They didn't actually wind up on reels like we see in today's projectors. So they were on long loops inside the cabinets. So their new device was originally called the Panopticon, Mm. and then would would also take on the name the Idoscope later. Uh, The very first demonstration of this would be at at that Frankfurt Street lab in in April of 1895. And the the very first projected film in New York City, in, you know, in America, would be the size of a very small TV set. It would be very, very small, but it would be very significant. One month later, they would actually make the very first film that was ever shot in New York on May 4th of 1895. It would, no surprise, be a boxing match, which of course was the popular sport of the day and a very active thing to be able to record. It was filmed atop Madison Square Garden, the one in fact on 26th Street. Right. But it was a fight between battling Charles Burnett and young Griffo. And young Griffo was a tragic boxing figure from Australia of the day. The film does not exist today, but it's uh, it's the very first film in New York, this starting a proud tradition. Post-production for that movie took all of two weeks, and they wow. were able to debut it on May 20th, the very first projected film shown to an audience of non-professionals in a storefront on 156 Broadway. It wowed this very small crowd. What they did is they would show it, be a very short film, I believe it's like nine, eight, nine, ten minutes. Uh, they would let in a small crowd every 15 minutes would come in and they would sit and again it's not a very big projection so they're all sort of huddled (laughs) together sports fans flocked here of course and they were all reacting to the action as if it was a real boxing match of course it's very small boxing match 
Original advertisements for this proclaimed, quote, This is the first practical exhibition of subjects showing actual life movements on a screen ever made in the world, shown in a similar manner as ordinary living pictures. (laughs) It seems so obvious to us, but it must have really been kind of shocking to see human images moving around on a screen that weren't really alive. Now, Dixon wasn't done going off on his own here. He worked with the Lathams. He also worked with some other uh, other group of inventors to produce his own different kind of film device called the Mutoscope. That is a catchy name, isn't it? <laughs> but this would not be a projected device. It would actually be in competition to the Kinetoscope. And he had a special camera that would to make images for this Mutoscope called the Biograph. So, not surprising, their company would be called the American Mutoscope and Biograph Company, which uh-huh. was formed in 1899. Basically one of the very first film industries in the United States. And nobody should feel bad if these names start blurring together, because it's really confusing. We are literally, literally we have diagrams here. I can <laughs> barely, because they're all so similar. They actually had a studio in New York itself. They had a rooftop studio. Imagine mm-hmm. the sight lines on this, how glamorous this was on the southeast corner of Union Square at 841 Broadway in the heart of it all keep in mind in 1899 by this time of course Edison himself was getting into the projection game or or having films that were he had to yeah you had you know he had to compete with these other people his invention was the vitoscope or should I say Maybe not his invention. It was, in (laughs) fact, invented by another man named Charles Francis Jenkins. But it was sold to Edison because Edison needed to get in this game fast. He needed something that would be a usable camera. Um, Not only were the rights to the camera sold, but the rights to say that Edison invented the camera were also sold to Edison. So I hope hope Mr. Jenkins got a nice penny for that. (laughs) So the Vitascope... And the Biograph. These two companies are essentially the basis for the entire film industry today. The Vitascope would make its debut in April of 1896 at Coaster and Biles Music Hall in Herald Square. It sat on the northwest corner of Broadway and 34th. Now, what's at the, the northwest corner of Broadway and 34th today? Can well, you that imagine? sounds like the Sunglass Hut. Or <laughs> or the big building behind it, I suppose. Which would be Macy's, right. right. In fact, this theater, the very first theater where the Vitoscope had its debut, um, would be ripped down in 1901 and replaced with Macy's. Now, of course, not all film innovation was happening in New York. I mean, uh, shout-outs to France and the UK, most notably the Lumiere Brothers and the Cinematograph. Those, of course, would actually come to New York also right. within these years. So there were foreign competitors sending not only their technology, but their films to New York. Yeah, well, the Lumiere would actually debut in Union Square of June of 1896, his very first film. The British projection systems would also come. They would also debut in Tony Pastor's. So basically, all these vaudeville stages, all these vaudeville halls, they would actually become a a part of the roster of entertainments that people would go go and pay. And just part of the vaudeville show, right? So they could project a movie, a 10 or 15 minute short, in between vaudeville acts. Oh, sure, you'd have like a singer and a comedian, then you'd have a short film that an acrobat would come out, like that type of thing. You would even have bizarre mixtures of entertainment, like a wax museum, oh. like the like the Eden Musée uh, at 23rd Street between 5th and 6th Avenues. It was a legitimate wax museum, right. um, and they, just, they had a small theater in there. They would have vaudeville acts. Well, they decided to show films as well, and sometimes they would have films playing against some of the exhibits of wax figures that they oh. had. Sounds a little bit phantasmagoric. Now, one of the employees of this place was a man named Edwin Porter, and he was also another Edison former employee. He actually would revolutionize the, the filmmaking industry by, I mean, the first real auteur, that may be saying a little too much, but he would do things like combining two shots, you know, to make it a more complex experience. Mm. He would actually go on to make some of the early films that would influence other filmmakers throughout the years. In fact, he was the director of the movie The Great Train Robbery, which was filmed in New Jersey, and it would be a movie that would revolutionize because it was actually a storyline, you know. Right, and it would be widely copied, too. Oh, yes, people would actually make knockoff, like, I don't know, know, the great streetcar robbery. What would would be some (laughs) of the other... No, there was another film that came out right afterwards, Almost a shot-by-shot copy of, of Porter's. 
So this takes us to the beginning of the 20th century but and to the rise of the proto movie houses right because at this point as you mentioned the movies are just being shown between acts in vaudeville theaters so what hasn't happened really are purpose-built movie theaters or places where people would go to see only movies now remember that all of the movies that we're talking about again for another couple decades are silent films they would be Accompanied, however, by music or in the vaudeville houses, maybe by singers who would sing along, maybe an orchestra in bigger Mm -hmm. houses. But people were starting to see like Porter's Great Train Robbery and think, wow, in evenings, entertainment really could be comprised of only movies. And along came Harry Davis, a man uh, in Pittsburgh who ran vaudeville houses. In 1904, he also was running a penny arcade in Pittsburgh, and in the back of it, he had some extra space. So he set up a projector and a screen and started just showing these shorts. Well, this proved to be very popular. So in 1905, he converted another store and made it just a dedicated cinema called his Nickelodeon. Now, a Nickelodeon was already a term that was being used for for five-cent entertainment fare, where you just went and paid a nickel. But his was called the Nickelodeon. And thus, they're all sort of named in honor of this one, correct? It became the name of this whole... Movement. Of this whole movement, yes. Um, And he would just, in his first one, show just one short film over and over without any music. And it was a big hit. And within two years, he'd opened up 15 more Nickelodeons in other cities. By the fall of 1906, New York had more Nickelodeons than any other city in the world. That's incredibly fast. <laughs> so from well, the this whole thing it, is right. happening fast. I mean, remember that Edison's kinetoscopes like blossomed and burned within a year. Mm-hmm. And really, until the big movie palaces came on the scene in the in the later teens, the Nickelodeon was the predominant form of movie house. And in fact, as they grew around the country, many small towns could even support two of them. These movie theaters would change their repertoire every day so that people always had something to come to. It's such a different idea than what we're used to because people didn't go to a, see a particular film. They just went to see films. Right. By 1908, there were 8,000 Nickelodeons in the United States, and this would quickly grow. And by 1914, there were 14,000. New York City, actually, was the, according to Moving Picture World, estimated that by 1908, 300 to 400,000 people a day in New York were going to Nickelodeons. Well, it seemed like something more simple to do than going to sit and, say, watch a two-hour movie. It's something, it was a smaller experience and something you could really fit into your day. Well, and people did. They would go during their lunch breaks or women out doing their shopping might stop into the Nickelodeon. And remember that you'd approach the theater, hand over a nickel to somebody in a ticket booth, go inside and sit down, take a seat during a performance. They were mostly continuous performances throughout the day. Of course, we're speaking broadly here because there were some really low-end Nickelodeons, which would just be like, you know, a converted storefront with a bunch of kitchen chairs in the back. And then there were some really high-end ones, like in New York, that would pop up that were lavish and had great ornament to them with hundreds of seats and great music that was being performed at the same time. So there was great variation. But for the most part, they were continuously performing, and you could sit down and watch a number of shorts, and when it sort of looped back and you saw the first one start again, take off. Or you could just sit through them again if you liked it so much. Why not? Many of the owners of these Nickelodeons had more than one theater. They were starting their own small chains of Nickelodeons. And they'd move their films from one to another so that, you know, there was constant rotation. They could Mm -hmm. just send them from one theater to the next and started their first early film exchanges. Now, these included owners such as William Fox and Marcus Lowe Mm -hmm. in New York City, whose names today ring, ring bells, of course. I believe Fox even got a start in Staten Island. Well, they both got their starts with Penny Arcades. Mm. And then Fox branched out into vaudeville houses, buying up uh, theaters on 14th Street around Union Square, showing movies first in between acts at the vaudeville theaters, and then starting his own movie theaters. Lowe was also producing vaudeville. And these names, Lowe's? I mean, that's the... Of course. We seem so good with Lowe's movie theater. Well, Lowe ended up merging his theater chain with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, the studio, and Fox opened up his own studio in Hollywood in 1917, which we still call Fox. Fox, yes. (laughs) So they all got their roots, you know, locally. 
They're local boys done good. But with all of these theaters, Greg, obviously they needed more films, which caused a production boom, which was centered in New York and in New Jersey. They had to make dozens, hundreds of movies to fill fill these Nickelodeons. And so most of those studios uh, actually came into New York and the New York metropolitan area. Edison, for instance ended up moving into the city, moving out of the Black Mariah, of course. That simply wasn't going to do. His studio was, this is incredible, 41 East 21st Street in 1901 as he he moved here. Of course, right around the corner from this brand new skyscraper that was sort of crawling up, it was being built at that same time called the Flatiron Building. So he was right in the shadow of that. Too bad he didn't film it. That would have been an incredible sight. He did film a lot of other great New York scenes, though. Edison, there's a lot of great Edison New York films of just street life. His second studio, a much larger and more ambitious studio, was built in 1907 on Decatur Avenue in the Bronx. In fact, it's near the entrance of the Bronx Botanical Garden. You should look around the area, just sort of like get a sense of what they dealt with when they went to work every morning. And that was a pretty swanky place, right? It's weird because it almost, in pictures, looks like a greenhouse because they had glass ceilings that let in the natural light. Um, Sure beats tar. A lot more friendly than tar. In fact, you could you could actually film multiple movies at the same time in the same room because keep in mind there's no sound. So the sound of one of one film being made is not going to interrupt the other. So they just have these partitions. Right. And so it's really an incredible, busy, uh, it's almost like a colony of ants just uh, working busily. It's magic. Biograph, meanwhile, was on 14th Street, also in Union Square. This, I would actually say the Union Square, Chelsea, Flatiron area was sort of a proto-film neighborhood in the early 1900s. They worked in a converted brownstone and and it's an odd thing to think about a like a brownstone mm. building being a film studio, but they would they filmed a lot of their features there too. There were some film studios in New Jersey still, and some in Chicago and Philadelphia. Vitagraph, which was another company, just to make it confusing, Vitagraph, which is not Edison's, which is not Edison's. They they meanwhile came into existence around this time, and they had a studio in Midwood, Brooklyn. So we're just spreading out all over the metropolitan area. Short narrative films were being made at this time. Movies like Alice in Wonderland and Frankenstein were both filmed at this Bronx studio. New York was even used, as I mentioned, frequently as a set. And Alice in Wonderland and Frankenstein both, of course, had stories that the public would have been familiar with, which is another aspect of early movie making. Usually they were very simple stories or familiar stories because there wasn't very much use of intertitles, the, the titles between the shots at this point. On that note, like passion plays, right. biblical Religious. stories were right. also very popular. Who were in these movies? Of course, they had a, a lot of stage actors in which to draw from here in New York. The development of the very first, quote, movie stars happened around this time. For instance, Biograph uh, hired an actress by the name of Florence Lawrence, and yeah. um, she was sort of considered the, sometimes the first true film star. People started going to see movies that she was in. It was even the first film scandal surrounding Miss Lawrence in a a way to sort of like cook up some interest, some headlines in the newspaper. And what was that scandal, Greg? Well, there was a fabricated scandal that, in fact, ads would be run by Biograph, shooing away a, quote, rumor, which I'm not even sure if it was a (laughs) widespread rumor, that Miss Lawrence had been killed in a streetcar accident in St. Louis. And the ad was like, well, no, she's not. She's in our films. You can go to Coming out Thursday. Exactly. So Uh it was a first sort of fabricated studio scandal. And producers were actually nervous about their actors and actresses becoming stars because, of course, they were afraid that they'd start asking for more money. Until they caught on that by making these stars, they could actually start drawing audiences. Now, another thing they had to worry about uh, was Edison himself, who kept suing everybody throughout this whole period for patent patent infringements and like, you're you're using a camera that's too similar to mine or a lens that's too similar to something we designed. So there were always constant battles during this decade. In 1909, the Motion Picture Patent Company was formed. We call it the ominous name, The Trust or the Edison Trust. Do you remember when we talked about 
Ziegfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about Claw and Erlinger and the Syndicate, sure, which was basically almost a monopoly of the Broadway stages. This is kind of the same thing, but for film. And it was Edison and all the major film companies at the time, but it wasn't all the film companies. So if you weren't part of the trust, then you couldn't sh- you couldn't exhibit movies in New York. But in this process, in sort of having this hold over it, they also streamlined and modernized a lot of filmmaking and distribution processes. In fact, it was during this time that renting movies to exhibitors became the standard as opposed to selling them to these distributors because that way you could keep them in circulation and you could have a, a wider variety of movies through. This trust actually ran, believe it or not, until like 1915 and that's when the Supreme Court stepped in and said, well, no, this is a trust. You have to disband this. And by 1918, it was completely gone. Mm. One other little snag that the film and this young film industry met with a strong focus here in New York was the Victorian era um, morals. Uh Um, Because, you know, films would sometimes be paired with vaudeville, as we mentioned, and vaudeville is not exactly seen as high class entertainment. It appealed to the masses, and thus it must be evil. And it must be censored. So social groups at this time railed against these very early film images because, you know, very salacious, evil, you know, boxing, scantily clad women. Please, high kickers, Spanish dancers. Yeah, I mean, Nickelodeon's would allegedly draw a very unsavory clientele, and some of them probably did. Some of them were next door to saloons. So you know when like we go to see a movie and we're like, we need to get a drink and talk about this? Absolutely. Well, the saloons would be right there, and you could like talk about this lady kicking up her ankles or whatever, and talk about the boxing match you just saw. Most importantly, however, were these Nickelodeons, and vaudevilles were tied into this as well, were often open on Sundays. Movies were described as, quote, places that are the recruiting stations of vice, the gateway into all of these sort of more evil things. So there were a lot of major reformers at this time that were pressuring the city to do something about it. Believe it or not, the mayor at the time, George McClellan, he actually caved into this pressure on December 25th of 1908. He closed Every Nickelodeon in town, every place where movies were exhibited. Well, it was a little trick. He closed them and said, Well, no, you just need you just need to apply for a new license. And as soon as you get the license, you can reopen again. So that's fine, right? But when an exhibitor went down to file for a license, they had to promise to not open on Sunday. They also had to promise something a little bit more unclear how they would define this to avoid showing immoral films. Hmm. So Films that were, quote, unsuitable, degrading, demoralizing, or otherwise obscene. Now, the ban was raised. This didn't, couldn't last very long because this is, this is not how New York works generally. Um, <laughs> and think of the revenues that were being lost in the meantime. But in fact, movies, how they decided to combat this is movies decided to censor themselves. And so for a very short time, there was sort of a self-policing type of censorship. Now, I'm getting us here to the end, like around like 1908, 1907, and a major force enters the film world at this time, someone who will change the face of movie making forever. And in a way, lead it out of New York City. The man of which you speak is, of course, D.W. Griffith, or David Wark Griffith, who was born in 1875 to a poor family, but he had theatrical ambitions and a sort of Victorian romantic flair about him. He floundered about professionally uh, before starting to work on films for Edison, and in 1908 moved to Biograph, where he directed his first film, The Adventures of Dolly. So from 1908 until 1913, when he left Biograph, he directed 400 films for Biograph. (laughs) 400? 400 films. I mean, that is, I mean, that is like, what, like a, a movie every week? They were cranking them out. They were factories of film. But along the way, over the course of those 400 films, he was experimenting and really changing the craft, bringing new ideas and changing audiences' expectations. A number of innovations that he brought included, he was the first to regularly use quicker edits. You mentioned Porter using Mm -hmm. different angles and such, but 
but Griffith really took it to the next level, used quicker edits. For, for example, he might cut between the women locked inside a room, from cut from them to the man who's beating on the door, cut to the hero who's coming to save them all, and cut quickly back and forth between them. And this was this has simply not been done before. It tests if, if the audience, it tests their sort of mental, like, okay, can I wrap my head around this right. growingly sophisticated narrative? Many of the directors up to this point had come directly from the theater, and so they were used to directing a scene in a single setting before an audience. So Griffith is seen as one of the first directors who learned his craft for film, bypassing theater, and with using a whole set of new techniques in order to tell a story better and create suspense. Creating his own vocabulary, as they say. And in 1910, he he broke again by cutting closer to the action. Up until this point, directors had been shooting 12 feet from the action and basically keeping their cameras stationed 12 feet away. So he started using a long shot, then cutting to a closer shot, and then maybe doing a close-up. It, it was a real novelty for an audience to see a face, you know, that close, like a close-up. It required a different kind of actor because the people who had been featured in most of these films had been stage actors, and they had been trained to make louder gestures that could be read at the back of the theater, of course. Now, with close-ups, that demanded a certain more nuanced, understated performance. Can you imagine the sort of, like, crazy eyes (laughs) in a close-up? That that could just make an audience laugh, of course. What was a new kind of hamming it up? Because to be expressive, and even when you see these movies today, they're they're overdrawn uh, emotional reactions, but for the time... They were. It was extraordinary because well, you'd never seen those before. And remember that they weren't speaking, so they had to express themselves. And really, by rolling their eyes, they could, you know, they could express love or sadness or excitement. But just through a roll of the eyes, it was a new kind of eye roll, Greg. And the new actors that he found were youngsters, relatively, like Lillian and Dorothy Gish, Mary Pickford, Blanche Sweet, and others. Now, a lot of these movies, which is why we're talking about it, are actually filmed in New York. D.W. Griffith actually made the first film known to have been shot in Central Park in 1908 when he filmed Father Gets in the Game, (laughs) starring Max Sennett as Father. Which has such a narrative complexity that it's almost (laughs) difficult to watch. (laughs) It's essentially about like an an old man. Max Sennett. Who is not an old man, but he plays an old man in the movie. And he basically, like, escapes from his house, I guess it must be in the Upper East Side or something, and escapes into the park and starts flirting with ladies. Scandalous. <laughs> Remember, this is a one real short. But you can see, like, I think Bethesda Fountain. You, there's, you see the environs of Central Park very clearly in the movie. Four years later, he shot The Musketeers of Pig Alley, which is considered to be the first gangster film shot on location in New York. And also credited to be the first use of follow focus. And he used actual gang members as extras. So Griffith is known for dramatic works. He's also known for some, a couple comedies, some awkward comedies. Um, (laughs) My favorite, the 1909 knee slapper, Those Awful Hats. (laughs) About a woman who won't take off her hat in a crowded movie theater starring Max Sennett and Flora Finch. Oh, stars the day. I think if, this movie is sophisticated because you actually see a movie in the background. A so movie it's, it's, within a movie. Right, it's self-referential. Um, in 1910, he made In Old California, filmed on location in California, the first major film shot in California. That, of course, is a big deal. And it's sort of punctures New York's place as the, new, the movie capital because, of course being the first movie shot in the Los Angeles area. He would then come back to New York raving about the sunlight. California would boast that it has 300 days of sunlight, perfect for filming, a year compared to New York with less sunlight, which required more electricity, which was, of course, expensive. And let's not forget, I mean, New York is also being branded here as like an ultra-moral place where, you know, it's hard to even exhibit your films. And, of course, you... Wanting maybe go somewhere where Edison can't find you Uh or follow you. So in 1913, he finally did break with Biograph. And he took many of his actors with him, went out to Hollywood and formed the Fine Arts Studio. And there he got to work on his 
film The Klansman, which would become Birth of a Nation when it opened in 1915 and proved to be one of the most important and controversial films of all time, considered to be the first blockbuster movie. Now, by the way, there's there were urban legends, and you may, you may still see these sometimes in books, that said that some parts of Birth of a Nation were filmed in Staten Island. That is, in fact, not true. But the film debut, when it was first shown in New York, was a scandal. So there were actually a lot of uh, protesters. And so it was even very controversial even then. People were even in the movie theater would throw things at the screen. And he responded to the protests the next year when he released Intolerance, which was to show the history of intolerance through the ages, uh, which was not a big of a hit, though very important. He would make movies with limited success through the 1930s and died in 1948 in Hollywood. He's widely credited as being the father of modern movie making. Now, this revolution that Griffith started in 1910 with the first movie filmed out in California, as you said, everyone fled out to California. It became the desired place. And of course, even today is the capital of, of filmmaking. All of the major studios that were in New York had branches out there that, of course, grew larger and larger and larger, and the New York ones became small, and eventually many of them would close. Some movie studios would close entirely. Edison got out of the film business entirely in 1918. Biograph was out of it by the, by 1916. Vitagraph, this company that had been out in Brooklyn, they were eventually acquired by Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that all filmmaking left New York at this time. That's absolutely not true. In fact, there were a few holdouts and a few new studios that would try their hand here in New York. For instance, in 1912, a company by the name of Famous Players Film Studio actually opened their headquarters on 26th Street in West Chelsea. And today it's known as the Chelsea Studios, and they still make television shows and films there today. What happened when film studios went out to California... They were allowed to make larger movies with bigger stars. The films themselves became, of course, longer. I mean, Intolerance, for instance, I believe is like three hours long. Birth of the Nation's really long. Like they're they're even longer than a standard movie is today. So as a result, the place to watch those movies, like you, you no longer have a Nickelodeon. Right. You paid five cents to, to go in to see a three-hour movie. That didn't make any sense. You need a system that was a little bit more standard and and more in line with what a Broadway theater would be like. But in order to do that, the actual places themselves had to upgrade. So in New York, in 1913, one of the first early houses that's actually still around today was the Regent Theater in Harlem. It would be notable for being an all-picture house, although this would not be the first place that would show only films. There would still be some vaudeville along the side. It was designed by a man named Thomas Lamb, who designed this place with a very, very ornate Spanish flourishes. And he would be instrumental in all the major brand new big movie houses that would be designed and developed in New York around this time in the mid-19-teens. A young exhibitor also by the name of Samuel Rothfeld began working here at the time. Of course, this is the... Happy Mr. Roxy. Mr. Roxy himself, of course, the Minnesota movie exhibitor who moved to New York to make it big. He would get his start here. Now, what is considered to be the very first true movie house in New York in 1914 was called the Mark Strand Theater. It would be at Broadway and 47th Street. It cost $1 million to build and was also designed by Thomas Lamb. Lamb would go on to design all the great movie palaces in Times Square. 1916, the Rialto. In 1917, the Tivoli. He would even go on to design the original Ziegfeld Theater. And these movie palaces, with their grandiose designs and their ornaments, would also be knocked off all over the country. In fact, did you know that Sears Roebuck sold, like, basically an instant movie theater kit where you could get plaster moldings of all this stuff to dress up your Nickelodeon to make them fancier? Wow, that's, well, it it didn't work, unfortunately, for Sears, because (laughs) something major happened to sort of eliminate the Nickelodeons. Theater owners decided, well, the movies are longer, we can charge more. So they started charging 10 cents. Right. So it would no longer be... A nickel. The Dimelodians yeah, uh, that that didn't have the ring to it, so that, that didn't happen. In 1912, there was a, a new film organization, a film studio in New York that was called the Lasky Feature Play Company. It was a film studio created by three men, Jesse Lasky, a man named 
Samuel Goldfish. Mm-hmm. He would later change his name to Goldwyn. And a third player here, a man named Cecil B. DeMille, who would be the head director for this company. They would, of course, move out to L.A. themselves and make history and film. But in 1916, this company merged with the famous players, which is what I, I mentioned earlier. Right. Um, they, would, they would merge to become the famous players Lasky Corporation. They would just combine the two names together. Now, in 1920, now we're getting a little bit far afield of what we were going to talk about. We were about to wrap it up, but I'm bringing this up for a very important reason. In 1920, the famous players Lasky Corporation built a huge film studio in in Astoria, Queens. Queens would essentially, during the 1920s, then become the new center for filmmaking. So if you were in the movies, if you are in the movie biz in New York City, most likely you were taking a brand new elevated train over to, to Queens to get to work every day. Lots of classic films would be made out here, including a lot of Broadway talent in the 1930s. The Marx Brothers movies would all be filmed out here in the Astoria studios. Famous players would then go on to become absorbed into Paramount Pictures. Now, the studio is still around today. It's still working order. They make dozens of things a year there. It's called the Kaufman Astoria Studios. It's, it's actually in, on the National Register of Historic Places. I like this because it really connects New York with its past as a, as a true movie-making capital. And you can still walk by it today and see a functional movie studio in New York City. And right next door, you can visit the Museum of the Moving Image. It just recently reopened this year. A wonderful new renovation inside. If you're interested in any of the things that we've talked about on the show today, highly recommend that you go here because they have all these different exhibition rooms. Not so much about the history of film, like you're not going to walk into a Betty Davis room. It's more about the, the history of the process of making movies. That process that was developed by pioneers here in New York. And you can go there and you can even see the first kinetoscope, for instance. You get demonstrations. Some of the movies that we've even talked about, The Great Train Robbery, that the color film dance. Yes. Uh, can, you can go there and spend the whole day there and just immerse yourself in what it was like to be an early film audience in New York City. Before we go, we should just mention that we did rely on, on some great books for our research. It's funny because a lot of the really good sources for this are sort of out of print. So if you want to pick up something that you can read... You can head to the library, to the Mid-Manhattan Library, because Greg and I will both be returning our copies (laughs) of From Peep Show to Palace, The Birth of American Film by David Robinson. There's also something starting with film history in the 1920s, a book called Hollywood on the Hudson by by Richard Kozarski. Uh, It's a huge tome, but it's exhaustively researched. And really kicks off with Griffith moving out to L.A., and like I said, we've the story continues, and in future podcasts, we will jump back aboard and take another look at New York and the movies. Because, of course, movies continued, thankfully, to be filmed here in New York by companies that are also based in New York City. On the blog, I'll have some pictures of, of directors and early studios. And, and maybe Fred Ott's sneeze. Yes, and plenty of the original films, of course. And I'll try to focus just on the ones that are filmed in New York. You can also find us on Facebook. Just type Bowery Boys and become our friend there. So let's wrap it up, Greg. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.